following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. Um, in the last year, we built a, a front porch onto our house. Uh, and and I've, I've talked before, our house was built in the, the 1950s, and it's it's been added on to a few times. It's been pieced together a little bit. And so if you know older houses like that, there's no real telling how things are built or how they're constructed. And so we had, before we put on the front deck, we had this concrete stairway in front of our front door. And so to build the deck, we had to remove this, these, this set of concrete stairs. Now, there's lots of ways you can build some concrete stairs. And so we didn't know exactly what it was. So I had the bright idea one day, well, I'm just going to find out. So I went to the garage and I, I got a sledgehammer out and I thought, you know, I'm going to take a few hacks at this, uh, at, at this set of stairs with a sledgehammer and we'll see, you know, if it's just hollow concrete, it, it may just fall apart and we may be able to take care of it. So I, I get everything out and get ready and, and I take big swing with this sledgehammer. And, and I'm not a, a strong guy by any stretch of the imagination, but, but I can swing a sledgehammer. So I swing the sledgehammer and, and it just, and it kind of shakes, and the sledgehammer shakes, and nothing happens. So I swing again, and I swing again, and it took me about six or seven swings before I look at it, and I realize, you know, nothing is going to happen to these stairs. I've, I've knocked out a little bit of, like, concrete dust is all that I've gotten done. So this was not going to happen. So we, we talked about, okay, what do we do? And we ended up calling our our behind our house neighbor, Kyle Brooks, and he brought over his bobcat. And he's got this tool that goes on the front of the bobcat. I don't know, this is beyond my realm of expertise, so I don't know what the technical term for this piece of equipment is, but it was this big metal, almost like a metal post with a a pointed end on it. And he brought this over with the bobcat. And in a couple of hours, he had not only the front steps torn out, but all the the sidewalks that we were going to have to tear out and all this stuff. Right, what would have taken me, if, if I'm being kind to myself and thinking I can work really well, would have taken me a couple of months. And, and honestly, it may never have happened. It took him just a couple of hours. Why was that? Easy. Because the sledge couldn't do what the bobcat could do. <laughs> In the past two weeks, We've read where the Apostle Paul draws the distinction between the doctrines of the false teachers who are trying to infiltrate the church in Colossae and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In today's passage, he's going to describe the power behind each of those teachings, and he explains what it is that makes the gospel of Jesus Christ able to do what the false teachings could never do. In other words, Paul asks the question, what is it that makes the Christian faith able to do what every other religious teaching cannot? And we get the answer here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. And simply put, Paul tells us that the the false teachers are building their teaching on a foundation of law of rules, of of regulations, really of what mankind can accomplish. But the gospel builds its teachings on a foundation of grace. 
Not what we can do, but what God can do. A foundation on grace, the giving of a gift that we have not earned and do not deserve. And in the course of this teaching, Paul shows us three distinctions between the powers of the law and the power of grace. He begins in verse 20 through 22, where he says, the law is temporary, but grace is eternal. The law is temporary. Grace is eternal. Watch what he does here. Colossians chapter two, verse 20 through 22 says, if you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. The law is temporary, grace is eternal. Now, Paul begins here, he says, if you died with Christ, and I'm not gonna go into Greek grammar or anything like that, but just understand that when the New Testament writers write questions like, and, and statements like that, if, then kind of statements, there's a number of ways they can construct them in the Greek language, and each one leads us to think something different. The way Paul constructs this, he says, if you died with Christ, we are meant to read that and and understand that he's implying you have died with Christ. You have died with Christ. See, the, the false teachers are driven by laws and regulations based on what they can do, how they can live their lives how they can operate in this world. But Paul says, as believers, we are delivered from this world through the execution of our earthly nature, right? We have died with Christ. What do dead people do? Nothing, they can't do anything. We have died with Christ, our salvation, our standing, our significance, our everything cannot be about what we do because we have died. Now, that's not a sad thing. In fact, Paul says it, it's a statement of victory. He says, you, you've died with Christ. You no longer belong to this world. You no longer belong to the regulations and the commands and the ideas and the thoughts and the philosophies and the, the doctrines of humankind. You don't live in this world. Why do you keep living your life as if you do? And he says, and, and, and why do you live in this way where you say, don't, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Right, this, these three questions, these three statements um, likely points back to the religious practices we talked about last week in verses 16 through 19 of Colossians chapter two, where we talked about the, the, the food rituals, the, the festivals, the ascetic false humbling practices and false worship. He says, you, you don't live according to these things, right? So why do you keep going back to them? And Paul's telling them, he says, listen, this is, none of this is meant to last. It's meant to be used up. Why? Because the works of finite man produce finite results. Eternal results rest in God's eternal and infinite power. In Numbers chapter 28, 
God's giving the Israelites who have come out of Egypt some laws to follow, some, some rules to remember in worshiping him. And in, in Numbers 28, verses one through two, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses, command the Israelites and say to them, be sure to present to me at its appointed time, my offering and my food as my food offering, a pleasing aroma to me. Then in verse six, he says, it is a regular burnt offering established at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Now there's a word in here that's really important for us to understand in the context of today's teaching. God says, you're to make these offerings to me to make yourself holy, acceptable, to worship me. He says, these are to be what? A regular burnt offering. Why is the word regular so important there? Because regular means it's meant to be repeated. The offerings of the Old Testament and, and whatever they were trying to achieve in those offerings, in those sacrifices, they were meant to be regular. They had to be done over and over and over again. They had to be done time and time again. Why? Because their effectiveness was finite. It was never meant to be eternal. They were never meant to be the sacrifices that delivered us. And this is the same of all religious practices of mankind. Nothing we do is meant to deliver us. That, that's not its purpose. And that's not what it's capable of doing because it is finite. My kids, they like to cook. They like to bake with, with Aaron and I. And it's mostly with Aaron, but, but I do some Saturday morning special breakfast things with them that we will sometimes make together. But my kids love to cook. They love to bake. And that's That's awesome. Right, cooking with them, baking with them, it, it's fine. It's fine. It, everything takes four times longer, but, but it's great. But here's the thing. I would never, at least at this point in their lives, I would never turn them loose to make a family dinner from scratch. That would be expecting them to do something that they are not capable of doing. It would be unrealistic and, and without a doubt, it would be unsuccessful. This is kind of like the law. The law was not given to bring our eternal salvation. If we are relying on the law, on our efforts, on our abilities to do things, to bring us eternal salvation, we will be we're being unrealistic and ultimately we will be unsuccessful because the law does not bring salvation. That was not the purpose of the law. The law was given to point out our failure and our need for a savior. Paul, Paul writes about this in the book of Romans, Romans seven, verse seven. He says, I, I would not have known what sin was if not for the law. He says, the law is good. It has its purpose and we should understand that. And it's good within its purpose, but its aim was never to bring salvation. No, Jesus came to extend God's grace and offer salvation. For you and me, our salvation is not secured by our efforts, by our goodness, by the values we hold, but by the eternal victory of Jesus Christ. Jesus died once and for all. 
to win the victory over sin and death and the flesh. And that once and for all victory is eternal. You, you can act good. You can do good things in this life. And, and don't hear me say, saying that doing good or, or being a good person is bad. No, there is temporal value to, to making good decisions, to being a nice person, to being kind, to treating others well, to taking care of the things you have. Those are good things. But if we're relying on them to deliver us eternally, then we're fooling ourselves because the only things that good actions, good activities can bring eternally, the only thing that brings is death. So let me ask, do we expect our actions to deliver a a redemption that only God's grace can provide through Jesus Christ? Because the law, acting a certain way, doing certain things, that's temporary. Only God's grace is eternal. So despite its temporary nature being pitted against the eternity of grace, Paul gives us more about this power behind the two the two teachings of the false teachers and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says the law is temporary, grace is eternal. Next, he says the law is arrogant, grace is humbling. The law is arrogant, grace is humbling. We see this in the first half of verse 23. And I'm gonna read the whole uh, verse here and then we'll, we'll jump into what we're talking about in the first half. Verse 23, Colossians chapter two says, although these have a reputation, okay, these, he says, although these, what are these? Well, he says in, in verse 22, right? The human commands and doctrines. He's saying the law, the, 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 the teaching of the idea that you have to be a certain thing. You have to do certain stuff in order for God to love you and accept you and redeem you. He said, although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body. They are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. The law is arrogant. Grace is humbling. The the first part of this verse, again, uh, comes with some some debate about specifics on how these words and phrases work together. together. Um, and the, the Greek grammar here is, is a little unclear in terms of those relationships. But the main point is really obvious and really clear. And it's that while the regulations of mankind appear to have wisdom, means that if we just look at them, they look wise, they look like they make sense. And And according to the world and and our human sensibilities and traditions, they do. Although they look that way, they look wise, they are not. They look wise, but they are not. Right, the law sounds reasonable to our human sensibilities, right? Doesn't it it make sense to you? Because it makes sense to me that if I want God to know me, to love me, to save me, then I have to, you know, meet him halfway. I have to get to him. I have to do good things. I have to be a good person. I have to, to make enough of myself. 
I have to follow all the rules and, and obey perfectly in order for a perfect God to accept me as his own. That sounds reasonable. And in my brain, I get that. The problem is, is that it's grossly unbiblical and not at all true. You wanna see how this works throughout scripture? Go back to the book of of Exodus chapter three, where God calls Moses. And you remember God calls Moses when he is far from Egypt. Why is Moses far from Egypt? Because he killed a dude and ran away. And really he's been in hiding for 40 years, hiding from the law. And God calls to him and remember what God calls him and says, Moses, you're going to go and you're going to, you're going to be my messenger to call my people out of Egypt. And God doesn't say, okay, Moses, but first you need to go stay in trial for that murder that you committed. You need to apologize to all these people. You need to make sure everybody knows your, your penitent heart. No. God says, I know who you are. I know who you've been, but come. Do what I've called you to do. In Luke chapter five, Jesus calls Levi, a tax collector, to come follow him. And remember what he says to Levi? He says, Levi, leave the tax booth. Give all the money back that you've stolen from people apologize to everybody, make amends, and then come follow me. That's what he says, right? No? What, what does Jesus say? Oh, that's right. Jesus sees Levi in the tax booth and looks at him and says, follow me. Get up now and follow me. So we'll take care of all that other stuff, but right now, follow me me. In Acts chapter 9, God doesn't wait for Saul to stop persecuting the church and putting Christians to death and scaring the believers all over the world before calling him into his service. No, God calls him and says, you come with me. You follow me. You serve me. See, God's grace is incredibly humbling because he takes our weaknesses and he uses them to show his incredible strength. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 through 29, Paul again writes, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise by human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. God says, I wanna use you. I don't need you to fix your weaknesses. I don't need you to fix your frailty. He says, I wanna use you. So come follow me. We'll take care of the rest of this when the time comes. But not right now, you need to come follow me. Or some of you may think about yourselves and you're like, okay, I know God's called me into his service. I'm supposed to love him and serve him and worship him, all that stuff. Yeah, I know all that. But I just don't know enough about the Bible to share my faith. Like I don't have the answers. What if they ask me something I don't know? I don't know enough to share my faith. And you know what? You're right. You don't know enough. You don't have all the answers. 
And here's the thing, you never will. Nobody does. But God's calling is not know enough and then act and follow me. No, your calling is to be faithful to whatever God calls you to and let him be the guide in fulfilling your mission. Maybe you're somebody who's convinced yourself, well, I don't have anything to offer the kingdom work. I don't have special skills. I don't have the ability to, to preach or to lead worship or to, I, don't, I, I just, I don't have the skills. I don't have anything to offer. And you know what? You're probably right. You don't have anything to offer. You don't have anything to offer God that he needs because he doesn't need you, but he wants to use you. Your call is to be faithful and to let God use you for his purposes, whatever that may be, however that may work, however unlikely or improbable that may seem to you on the surface. Your call is to be faithful and let him use you probably in ways you never would have imagined he could use you. Maybe you're somebody who would argue, yeah, but if people knew this about me, if they knew what I'd been through, if God knew the thought that I had or the places I've been or the experiences I've had, nobody would want to be around me, especially not God. And you know what? There may be some people out there who don't want to be around you, but God's not one of them. God's not one of them. He has called you to be a part of his family, to be a part of his kingdom. He wants to know you and he wants to use you to work in you and through your, your brokenness for his glory, not for yours, not so that you look better or you are accepted more or you're better liked, but he wants to use you for his glory. So what do you want to do with that? Well, listen, I don't, I don't know what this means for you specifically in your life and where you're at today. But in general, here's, here's what it means. Whatever your weakness, whatever your strength, whatever your hangups, whatever it is, understand that God's calling you. His grace should not shame you. It should humble you so that you are excited to be used by him in whatever way that looks, right? Maybe you need to start serving another person. Maybe you need to get involved in a local church. Maybe you need to serve in, in a youth ministry in this church or somewhere else. Maybe you need to go on a missions trip. Maybe you need to just be somebody who encourages others, who writes notes, who sends texts, who sends emails, encouraging others. Maybe you need to learn to listen well. Maybe you need to find ways to serve in your community. I don't know what it is that God's calling you to, but his grace, his willingness to use you for his purposes Man, that should just humble us to the point where we are ready to jump and run after whatever he sets before us. Because God's grace says your call to kingdom work is only about his power at work in and through you. All you have to contribute is humble faithfulness. It's not your gifts, it's not your abilities. That's not what God needs. It's not what God calls for. He calls for a humble faithfulness. 
So do we live in humility knowing the massive goodness of God's grace? Are we ready to act because we have been humbled by his glorious grace? The final words of verse 23 in Colossians 2 really brings this whole passage in the last couple of weeks together. Because 23 ends by saying, um, these false teachings, they, they promote self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body. Then he says this, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. The law, rules, regulations, they are not of any value at curbing self-indulgence. Why? Because the law is powerless. Grace is victorious. The law is powerless. Grace is victorious. Again, the, the religion of the false teachers cannot do what faith in Jesus Christ can do. Right, the value of any religious practice, any religious ritual, any act of worship, the value of that is never found in, in the action itself. It's only found in a commitment to Jesus Christ. If you remember, we go back to, to verse 19, we talked about last week. And Paul, uh, Paul said, he, which is the, the false teacher, the one who practices false humility, um, the one who says, oh, you gotta keep all these rules and regulations. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons grows with growth from God. He says, they're doing a lot of good religious activity, but it is pointless because they are separated from the head. And if you remember last week, we said, what do you call a body that is not connected to the head? You call it dead. It is a dead body. And so too, all our religious activities, if not connected to our worship and our commitment to Jesus Christ, they're empty, they're hollow, and they are dead. And the law is just that. And because it's dead, it has no power. It cannot curb our, our self-indulgence, our self-worship, our idolatry. Because that's not what the law is meant to do. That's not what the law's aim ever was. The aim of the law is to restrict activity. It has no power of overcoming sin and changing the heart. It simply restricts activity. That's what, that's what laws do, right? A speed limit is a law. What's it meant to do? It's restricting your activity of how fast you can drive. You can only drive this fast. The law cannot curb self-indulgence because it can't change the heart and it can't overcome sin. Think about it like this. Uh, think about a diet, right? And, and I don't have any... Uh, any idea what the actual numbers are or any studies that show X amount of diets fail? But I do know this, most diets fail. M most diets fail. Why is that? It's because diets simply seek to restrict foods or food groups. And that's effective in the short term. But what eventually happens, right? I say, okay, I'm not eating cookies. I'm off cookies. I'm off ice cream. I'm off whatever. For a day or two, you're okay. What then happens? 
you start to crave that thing that you're trying to avoid. And eventually the craving becomes too strong and you just give in and the diet fails. Because the diet isn't meant to curb your self-indulgence. It's meant to just say, no, I'm not gonna do this. I'm not gonna do that activity. You wanna succeed at a diet? Don't diet. (laughs) I'm dead serious. You wanna succeed at a diet? Don't start a diet. Instead, start a nutrition journey. Address the core need of your body, the core need for good, healthy, sustaining, fulfilling food. When you're filling your body with what it needs, when you're giving it what it needs and not just trying to curb some activity, then you learn to cut out the things that don't fit into what you're doing. See, you and I cannot save ourselves by the law, by what we do. We can't be good enough. We can't be righteous enough. We can't be wise enough. We can't be generous enough. We can't be anything enough to overcome sin and the selfish desires in our hearts. But praise God that he doesn't base our standing with him on anything we have to offer or anything we can do. Praise God that his judgment is based not on our offerings, but on the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That sacrifice of Jesus Christ that forgave sin, that overcame the self-indulgence of our hearts. In 1 John 2, verse 2, John writes, Jesus himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only ours, but also for those of the whole world. God's power to forgive sin, to overcome sin and self-indulgence is not just about my little realm of sin. Jesus overcame all sin. The sin of the whole world, he was able to overcome that. He has the power to forgive and to redeem He's been given the power of the God who created the heavens and the earth with nothing but a breath from his mouth. A God who sought us, pursued us in our unfaithfulness to the point to where he gave us the law to show us how we could never do this on our own. And at just the right time, after we had failed and failed and failed and failed, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be born of a virgin in a manger in Bethlehem to live a life perfectly that we were created to live but failed to do so that he could die on a cross as the sacrifice for sin, overcoming sin once and for all in a way that you and I could not do so that he could be laid in a tomb where three days later he would rise defeating death for all of eternity, delivering a victory that you and I could not win so that he could ascend to the right hand of the Father so that when you and I die and we stand before the Lord in judgment as every single person who has ever lived or ever will live, ever will live, will stand before the Lord in judgment. When we stand before him, Jesus will be our advocate who says to the Father, this one is ours and God will look at us and not judge us for the failure to be perfect and holy and everything we need to be in order to be in his presence. But he will see us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. so we don't have to rest 
in this life or in all of eternity in our ability to be good enough or to do enough. We rest in the joy of faith and in the freedom from the pressure of trying to be enough because Jesus Christ offers God's victorious grace through his sacrifice. For you and me, that means whatever weight we are carrying around today, whatever issue in our life we think we need to fix before giving a wholehearted commitment to God or to be truly accepted by him, whatever that thing is in the back of your mind that that I just have to overcome this, I have to be more successful here, I have to be able to offer this, whatever that is, we get to let it go. Whatever sin you think is keeping you from God, let it go. And and that doesn't mean that we don't have to deal with those sins. We are called to take sin in our lives, to reject it and eject it. But that's a response to knowing the love of God, not a hindrance to embracing it. Your sin, your struggle, and listen, maybe your sin and your struggle is that you're doing really well in life and you're a really good person and you think that somehow qualifies you for God's presence, right? That is idolatry. That is a sin that is keeping you maybe from fully embracing the love of God. Whatever the sin is that, that you think is holding you back, never forget Romans 5.8. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for the holy, for the godly, for those who were in perfect right standing with the Father. He died for sinners like you and me. Whatever that sin is, whatever is holding you back in life, whatever is holding you back from a faithful, wholehearted commitment to the Lord, understand it is not keeping God from loving you. It may be keeping you from fully loving him, but it's not keeping him from loving you. So wherever you're at today, come to the throne. Embrace his rest, find his peace, experience the renewed joy of hope and salvation. Find victory in the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace being given a gift which you do not deserve and have not earned. So where do we turn for our power, for a faithful life and service to Jesus Christ? Is it our power? Is it our ability? Is it our rule keeping? Is it the victorious grace of Jesus? The false teachers in Colossae did all they could to convince the believers that while Jesus was good and and maybe even necessary for their salvation, they also needed to uphold some standard of the law to make themselves good enough for God's love. And this is the same tactic that you and I will run into in this world. It's the same tactic used by false teachers outside of the church, inside the church. Sometimes it's a false tactic that we use against ourselves. 
But the reality is quite simple. And if we think about it, every single person on the face of the earth knows that this is true. The reality is this, we are incapable of being good enough for a perfect and holy God. We're incapable of doing enough to outweigh the darkness of our human flesh. We're incapable of earning our salvation. And if we're gonna live according to the law, if that's gonna be our standard, then we are doomed to death, despair, and an eternity in hell separated from the presence of a good, holy, and perfect God. Fortunately, we don't rely on our efforts according to the law. We rest in God's grace. By the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we rest in the eternal, humbling, victorious grace of God's love, mercy, forgiveness, and redemption. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may we never try to replace in our heads or in our hearts, God's incredible grace with our own efforts, with our own attempts to keep some law. Let us be a people who relish God's grace that has been so richly poured out on us. And may we be known as a people of God's grace as we live with one another and with the world around us, sharing his love, his forgiveness, his hope and his joy as we show God's grace in action wherever we are sent and in whatever mission lies before us. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the gift of the blessing of your grace. And we repent of the ways we have tried to replace your love and your grace with our efforts, where we've convinced ourselves that we can be good enough, that we can earn your forgiveness. Or maybe where we've put that on other people, expecting them to be something we expect them to be so that they can truly be loved. They can truly be enough. Father, we repent and we come back and we lay our lives before the cross. Say all that needs to be done was done when your son shed his blood, paid the penalty for sin, died, rose, and ascended so that we might know your glorious presence forever and ever and ever. We are so grateful for who you are, for the fact that you love us. That's in your great and your awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.